I was either championed, meaning like, I support you, I am pro-women, I'm an ally, or it was, you gotta be effing kidding me, I don't wanna work under a woman, absolutely not. Hi, I'm Cynthia Cortman-Westfall, a Broadway music director, conductor, voice coach, and tenured professor in the musical theater department at the University of Michigan. And I'm Chelsea Wilson, a performer turned voice teacher to Broadway stars and vocal coach on Broadway productions like The Phantom of the Opera, School of Rock, and more. Here on the Broadway Vocal Coach Podcast, you can expect real talk about the business, practical advice, and constant encouragement. We believe there's space for every artist in this industry. All you need is the right support. So consider us your two-woman hype team. Welcome to the Broadway Vocal Coach Podcast, where we help musical theater performers get unstuck and take the next step in their careers. Cynthia, it's so lovely to sit down with you. Yet again, here we are. We find ourselves in the podcast recording studio. I wonder if people know this or not, but we are not, we're not in the same place. We don't live in the same place. Mm -hmm. You're in Michigan. I'm in Washington State currently until my family moves to North Carolina this summer. Woohoo! We're so excited. But no, but we get to join each other here online pretty much weekly, which I always look Mm -hmm. forward to. So thanks for being here with me today. Today, we are turning the spotlight to you, Cynthia. Right at the beginning of the podcast, back in December, there's a phenomenal episode about your background, kind of how you got started in this business and an overview of the experience that you've had. That's episode six. If you haven't listened to that episode, listeners, definitely go back and check that out. Cynthia is just a goldmine of information and experience, and she brings so much expertise to what we do at Broadway Vocal Coach. And every day, I'm so grateful to get to work with you. So today's episode is just going to be an extension of that conversation, but a little, I want to hear more. I want to hear more of the behind the scenes. That's what this episode is really titled is behind the scenes with Cynthia. Cause I want to know what it has really been like as a woman in this business, as a woman in this industry. <laughs> and I'm oh, sure you have stories to tell. So we're going to kind of dive a little deeper into your experience and and advice that you have for performers and singers and and all of that. Let's go back to the very beginning. So Cynthia, you showed up and folks will know this. We've we've shared this story before, but you showed up in New York City in 1995. What was the outlook for a woman in the music field at that time? Yeah, well, I guess this will sort of say it all. When I moved to New York, I expected to be an opera coach. Although my my journal at the time does say, I just want to make music. I just want to make a living making music. But what I felt like was my only marketable skill was opera coaching. And you'll know this if you listen to the earlier podcast, but my very first night in New York City is when I saw my first Broadway show and I could see that there was a woman conducting and I didn't know that women could do that. So I think that tells you... <laughs> sort of the state of conducting at that time. There were so few women that I it wasn't even on my radar as something that women could do or did do. I just didn't even know. You've told this story before about when the Lion King was looking for folks to play in the orchestra and that they were looking for a more diverse pit. Yeah. Thank you, Julie Taymor. I mean, that really came down from Julie Taymor. 
Yeah. I feel like we've come a long way from that day and we still have a long way to go. But at that time, it just, it, I almost am just like, wow, what a time when like, we don't have any women playing in any of these pits. We better find some women who are going to play. But like, what was that like? And when you got the call where you're like, yeah, thank you for including me. Like, thank you for this opportunity. Or is it like, yeah, it's about time. Or like, well, I don't know. What was the feeling at, at that time getting that job, getting that gig? You know, I, again, I think because it almost wasn't on my radar that some of these jobs were even available to me. It it weirdly wasn't on my radar that I was being in some way excluded from them either at first, if that makes sense. It was almost just like I knew so little. It didn't even really occur to me that what I was trying to break into was so heavily dominated by men at the time. I'm not sure I really knew that much. I became more of an advocate as time went on because I saw and learned and experienced what was going on. But in the beginning, I remember thinking it was really cool that Julie Tamor was really advocating for a diverse pit. And I knew that I was on a short list. I knew that my name had been put in the pot. But I also knew I was the youngest and least experienced. So I in no way, shape or form did I ever think that was actually going to come to me. And the reason it did was because two other women turned it down first. So I got really lucky. I had the skill set. I was super prepared. I had just finished my master's. My, you know, piano chops were at their peak performance level at that time. And then I got really lucky with that opportunity. And yeah, interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, and if I have the story straight, the two women that turned it down, one of them took ragtime. She had been offered both shows, Ragtime and Lion King, because they opened almost at the same time. She took Ragtime instead. And the other had been an associate music director and felt that taking a keyboard three position on Lion King would feel like a step down from where she was. So she chose not to take the keyboard three slot. So I just got really lucky. I was like, I'll take that keyboard three slot. (laughs) Very happy to take that. That does feel like the perfect luck and opportunity and timing. So Cynthia, you started at Keyboard 3 and rose through the ranks and one day ended up conducting the show. So tell us about what your first conducting experience was like on Broadway, something you have done many (laughs) times since. Many times since. Yes. Well, the first time was a little bit surreal. So oftentimes keyboard players and rehearsal pianists end up being conductors just because you are the ones who know the show so well. You have to learn all of the cueing to be playing rehearsals, to be teaching the singers. You just know the show so very well. So that's often why keyboard players end up conducting the show. And I think that's really why it was it was a combination of I had a little bit of conducting experience already. I knew the show inside and out because I was in charge of scheduling all of the rehearsals for the show, which were upwards of 60, sometimes up to 80 hours a week of rehearsal was what I was scheduling to keep that show up and running. I was in charge of teaching all the singers. So I just knew the show really, really well and knew the cueing really well. So that's, I think, a big reason why I was asked to start conducting. But the first, <laughs> the first show I ever did... If you know me, you know I like to feel prepared. You know I like to show up early. 
I used to get teased for this all the time at Come From Away because I was always there before anybody. My associate couldn't believe how early I would get to the theater, but that's what I did. I just like to be there early. I like to leave all chance behind so that I I can feel in control of the moment. And so I left really early from my Upper West Side apartment down to Times Square. I got to the subway. And if any of you have ever taken the subway, this is, by the way, before they had the signs that tell you how long it's going to take for a train to get there. So you're just standing there hoping a train's going to come. I stood there and 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 stood there in the middle of summer. So it's hot. I'm just drenched in sweat down in the subway waiting for this train to come. I wait so long. And you get to the point where you think... If I leave now, I'm probably going to miss it. Like, I should just stay. Exactly. Like, just stick it out. I, it's going to be better to stick it out. It'll come any second now. And so yes. I wait and I wait. Yeah, any second. It's going to come any second. By this time, like, an, I don't even know how long has gone by. I mean, it must have been pushing in 45 minutes, an hour at this point, because I was rapidly, like, realizing that I don't know how I'm going to get there. So finally, they make an announcement that all trains are shut down. No trains. <laughs> so... I lived on, I was taking, I think I was probably taking the 103 station stop. That was my station. That was your station? Oh, that's a good station. (laughs) (laughs) I just think we were standing on the same platform. I love that. So by the time I got out of the subway, as you know, that train line starts way north. So all of those folks had already poured out of the subway, had already grabbed the cabs, had already filled up the buses. So there was no bus, no cab. I start running <laughs> to no, Times Square Cynthia. from 103rd Street. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm in my pretty little dress because you know I wore a pretty little dress to conduct my first Broadway show. I'm running, 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 running. It is so hot out. And you know why I know exactly why it was so hot on that day it was because it happened to be my birthday <laughs> oh <laughs> which is June 24 gosh. which is like dead of summer like it's summer heat on June 24 so I'm running down to Times Square by the time I get to the stage door I I kid you not I push open the stage door and I hear the call to places <laughs> so I go flying downstairs to get to the podium in time and it literally is like I threaded my way. I I do remember I went to the bathroom, threaded my way through the pit, climbed up the ladder to get to the podium and got on the phone with the stage manager and that and we were go- it was go. All right. Off we go. So Are I had no time to prepare. Me? No time to take a breath. It was the fact that I made it at all is shocking. You ran the whole way. I couldn't have run the whole way, but I'm. But but you did not a catch a cab halfway way in you, my fancy you little ran flats. The whole way. No, yeah, like you there were none because you know way. when the train shut down on Broadway, you can't get a cab. Yes. Oh, I know. There's thousands oh, of people gosh. pouring out of the subway all at once. There was no catching of any cab or bus. I can so, only imagine though oh. that like you had no time to worry that you would do a good job or not a good job. Right. It's just like, I'm here. Good thing I made it. It's like, it's going to be what it's going to be now. <laughs> exactly. That That's is exactly unbelievable. Right. Yeah. In some ways, it was kind of good because what was I going to do? Sit there an hour and a half early and just get nervous? Yeah. So I guess. in a way, it was kind of it was kind of the best thing was it, I just walked in and did it. Oh my gosh, that's so funny to me. Wow. Okay, so you went on to so many times more. Yeah, you went on to do it so many more times. You (laughs) conducted for years and years. You've conducted on other shows. And 
you move on to music directing, music directing on Broadway, which that's a different level of responsibility. That's a different level of involvement. That's a different level of, you know, creative input. And I want to hear what was that like? What are the challenges of being a woman music director on Broadway? Even as we speak now in 2023, there aren't many. So what what was your experience like that when you first got started doing that? It was tough. Going to lie. It was tough in some ways because it really felt, as I look back on it, it felt like no one treated me normally. I was either championed, meaning like, I support you, I am pro women, I'm an ally, or it was, you got to be effing kidding me. I don't want to work under a woman. Absolutely not. And So in retrospect, it's really interesting that I was surrounded by a handful of people who were highly supportive, which was amazing. And I would never have gotten where I was had I not had those folks. But as I look back on it, it would be nice to have it not be a thing one way or the other. And I know this is what anyone from any marginalized community feels like. It would be nice to not have it mean anything one way or the other, that it's just normalized and it just is. But that's sort of what it was like. It either felt like active support or active sabotage. (laughs) There was a a fair amount of both, to be honest. Wow. Do you feel like that's changed over the course of your career? Yeah, I think to some extent it has. I do think it has changed in that I I don't always sort of feel like the trick pony anymore when I walk into the room. On the other hand... Without fail, every single show, somebody mentions to me, oh, I've never seen, I've never seen a, often it's, I've never seen a girl conduct is what I usually get. I've never seen a girl conduct before. (laughs) Even in my 50s, I'm still called a girl. So I almost always get that, not almost, I think I have every single show I've ever done. I've gotten it from an audience member, from somebody, or from a player in my band. Like, oh, wow, I've never had a, I get this one a lot. I never had a chick conductor before. I get the chick conductor a lot. <laughs> Which I've learned to embrace. I call myself a chick conductor. If that's what it takes, I'm just going to take ownership of that word. <laughs> yep. But at the same time, there's still, I, I even the show, the, the last big tour I did, which was just a couple of years ago, there were a handful of stagehands that gave me a really hard time when we were in previews. And I finally, you know, had to do a really good clap back at them. And I have to tell you, I won't I won't go into the specifics of what they said or what I said, but you know, you always think of the thing you want to say after the fact. Like if someone insults you, yes. then it's yes. you know, the next day that you think of the perfect thing you should have said. And why is it always after the fact that you think of it? And for the first time maybe in my life in that moment when they finally they had said a handful of things to me and then said one more thing and I had the perfect clap back I was so proud of myself I said exactly the thing I wanted to say in the moment and I never had issue with those folks again which was great but all that to say, I still do get, I still do get a handful of, of things. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think about this, Cynthia, like, and I don't know how, how much this is true or how much this is my perception, but I feel like in our Western society, music, 
is often looked at like as a thing for girls, like young girls. If you think about like kids, like girls play music and girls are into music and boys play sports. Again, this is like such general stereotyping, right? Like, there, But there's this like expectation and then somehow we grow up and it's no, but you, you couldn't possibly be good enough or serious enough for there to be room for more women in the professional music industry. Like what is this disconnect that like somehow as when we're young, it's like music is quote girly. And I say that in a, how sometimes people use that in a negative way or negative connotation, but then we're not allowed a seat at the table when we're adults. Like what is that? Have you ever thought about that or like considered that dichotomy? Like why are the why are the rules different from when we're young to yeah, old? It's so interesting. Yeah, I've never really thought about it that way. That's that's really interesting the way you're describing me because I I do think that rings true. But yeah, I don't know. I remember when I first got to New York, I was such a hustler when I got there. I mean, I just was trying to make every connection I could and meet everybody that I could and introduce myself to everybody I could. And the thing that I got probably more than anything is Oh, you play the piano. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> As if it was just like a little hobby yeah. that I picked up. Like, wow. oh, you roller skate. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Can I interject that? Like, I have people in my life and some people who are not in my life anymore who sometimes ask me, like, how are your little voice lessons going? You know, and it's always like mm-hmm. that diminutive word, like little, like, oh, are you still teaching those little voice lessons? And I'm like, do you know that I'm running a freaking company over here and running a team and teaching people doing amazing, you know what I mean? It's just like this diminutive language that we use sometimes around the things that women pursue. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm so frustrated by it. I'm so frustrated by it. And in, in some ways we've come a long way, but there's just so much further to go. There's so much further to go in making Yeah, there is. in making more space for women and for non-binary people to have a space and to be considered professional enough and good enough to be taken seriously at the highest level in our industry and other industries. I know I'm like preaching to the choir here. This is not just a theater thing yeah. or a music thing. It's it's everywhere, but I feel this in my life every day and I'm not a music director on Broadway, so amen to you. Yeah, no, it is still it is still quite pervasive. Yeah. The other thing that I want to talk to you about, because I became a mom 18 months ago. Oh, my gosh, how that has flown by. (laughs) The cutest little girl ever. You became a mom right at about the time you took the job at University of Michigan and you came on faculty. So you had left New York and and being full time in New York, full time music directing in that sphere, but of course took on a whole host of different responsibilities, becoming an educator, moving into the college and university space, and you became a mom around this time. In fact, when I was your student at Michigan, you had just had your second like a year or two prior. Like your kids were little and like they would sometimes come pick you up at the end of rehearsal and stuff. And like we saw your little kids, you know, and like that was so beautiful for me as a student. I just want to say this, like it was so beautiful for me as a student to see like, oh, wow, Cynthia, my professor is a whole person with a family and look at all the things she's doing and that she's so well respected and and she's such an expert in. And I also never could have imagined at that point in my life at 18 20, 22 years old, what that actually was like on your plate. 
Like not not mm-hmm. in the least could I possibly begin yeah. to understand. What was yeah. that like taking on this <laughs> amazing job, continuing your professional relations within <clears throat> the Broadway and musical theater industry and all of that and becoming a mom? Wow. That's a three-hour podcast right there for you. <laughs> I was working at Lion King when I took my position here at University of Michigan. And I had also, I had left Lion King briefly, briefly only because my show closed really early because it was a flop. But I had left <laughs> Lion King at one point to be music supervisor on another Broadway show, which one of my students years later did research on that and said, I think you were the first female music supervisor ever on Broadway. <laughs> so I'm trusting her Google searches on that. If I wasn't the first, I was one of the first. So it was kind of an exciting time. You know, I had a big Broadway show. I had another Broadway show that I was music supervising at the same time. I had a couple other shows that were in the works at the same time. I had a lot going on. And right around that time, my mom died. And oh, I get emotional still to this day. But it sucked the wind out of me to the point where I just lost the hustle. I just had no hustle left. And I ended up going back to Lion King. Thankfully, my job was still there. They had they had hired someone just as an interim who was going to later conduct the London company. So he was in to train. So thankfully, because he was filling in, learning the show while I was gone, I was able to actually get my Lion King job back again. And I kind of settled back in there for a few more years because I just, I had no hustle left in me, which if you knew my hustle level, <laughs> you knew this This is saying something. I just heard you running down Broadway so for an hour. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just so ambitious when I got there and, and in a good way, meaning I just loved it. I loved being a part of that business. I loved, by this time I was becoming more of an advocate you know, I'd been so jazzed about the whole thing. And then that just sort of knocked the wind out of me for a couple of years. And right around that time is when I met my now husband, who is the best man on the planet. I just got so fortunate meeting this beautiful person. And Lion King had become stressful for a number of reasons. And he mentioned to me one night shortly after he got married, he was like, do you know you come home and you cry every night when you get home from work? (laughs) I was like, no, no, I don't. What are you talking about? No, I don't. And I started kind of taking note of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. I do a lot of the time. I I am not super happy here anymore. <laughs> and it had been a while. I'd been there for a really long time. So, you know, it was a good, it was a good time to change. And right around that time, I became aware of a job at University of Michigan. And the whole story of how that came around is again just very the universe sort of dropped it in my lap at that time. And so when I ended up getting that position, it sort of felt like all signs are pointing to me needing to go take this job. And Lion King ended up giving me a nine-month leave of absence to go do it for a year. So I thought, well, I'll try it for a year. And if I hate it, I'll go back to Lion King. And instead, we ended up staying. And that summer, I got pregnant with our first kid And that sort of started this whole different life of teaching and having kids. And at that time, I sort of thought my professional life 
as I knew it, it's probably mostly over. I'm going to now be a teacher and that's okay. A friend of mine who was a Broadway actor shared this with me that she said there are times when you have to go from being a little bit important to a whole lot of people and instead become super important to a very small number of people. And that's what I felt like I did. I felt like, okay, I was a little bit important back in my Broadway days and conducting for audiences who are all having a great experience. And that's nice. And now we're going to hone in and I'm going to be super important to this baby and my husband and maybe to some students at U of M. You know, it's just like my world just became a lot smaller which was which was good, but it was a hard shift. It was a really hard shift to go from one to the other. But then even my, you know, things that you can't foresee, one of the first students that I had, two of the first students that I had were Justin Paul and Benj Pasek at University of Michigan, who a couple years later, when they had their first Broadway show that they wrote, which was A Christmas Story, again, by a kind of a long chain of wacky events, I ended up music directing the tour of that that went out first. There was a national tour that went out. And then the following year, it went to Broadway. And the year after that, it went to Madison Square Garden. And I ended up music directing the tour and being associate on the next two. And then supervised the next tour that went out on year four. So four years I had of that incredible Broadway show. There were a number of those opportunities that continued to come up even after I came to Michigan. So it was interesting in that I made these big shifts that just opened up other opportunities. And when Christmas Story came around, is the first time that my husband and I decided, we decided on this rule of like, either all of us go or none of us go was sort of how for the tour, we made it work (laughs) Mm -hmm. for, for everything. From here on out for big jobs that are for long lengths of time, either all of us go or none of us go. That is what we've managed to do ever ever since. If anything's more than two weeks or so, they come with me or they come out for a long length of time. And so just balancing that, balancing being out of town or taking jobs away from home and traveling your family with you and living in hotel rooms or in tiny apartments. It's just been it's been kind of this nonstop adventure as a family and kind of amazing. Not kind of amazing, super amazing. It's been amazing. It's been the gift that I would never have foreseen in that first year of having a baby at Michigan. I love that you made that decision as a family. And that does feel incredibly special. It reminds me of the song, The Glamorous Life, the Sondheim song, The Glamorous Life. It's yeah. like, my mother's out yeah. doing a, a show. Is your mother out doing a big production? But but better than that because like they're with you and they get to witness you do this. And yeah, you know, when you took your year sabbatical from U of M and MD the Come From Away tour, you traveled with your family for a year in hotel rooms and like what yeah. an incredible and wild experience yeah. for your whole family to experience. And I'm curious, you said that's how we try and find balance. Do you feel like as a mom and a professional and all these things, all these things that you are simultaneously, do you find balance or is it the pursuit of balance? Like, what do you think? Like, what's actually realistic? (laughs) Here I am, like 16 years behind you with my baby. So like, what can I expect, Cynthia? (laughs) 
Does my cackling give you an idea of whether I found balance yeah. or not? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm getting the sense. <laughs> I think in the beginning, I had very little balance. I think in the beginning, when I first had my kids and I had had enough time pass after my mom passed to sort of get some of that ambition back again, I think I fought that for quite a number of years and kind of chose to suffer over it, (laughs) if I'm honest. (laughs) And in retrospect, I would have done some things different, but I can only have the retrospect because I know what I know now and I didn't know what I know now back then. So if I have compassion, I look back at myself and I think, you know, you really did do the best you could with, with what your tools were at the time. And I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at setting boundaries and making really clear choices that are my choice and not the choice that I feel someone else is pushing me to make or that someone else thinks I should do. I'm, do- I'm doing a better job at asking advice of folks who understand where, where I'm coming from rather than folks who would never in a million years choose my lifestyle. My lifestyle is not for everybody. I totally understand that. And and sometimes I used to ask advice of those who like a very stable lifestyle. And of course, they would repeatedly tell me how bananas it was to do anything that I was about to do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. You know, everybody has their own path. But I, I do like a little of the chaotic life, if I'm honest. And I do like stability. I, li- I like a little of both. So finding that balance has been interesting is is like staying just creative enough and keeping my life just interesting enough and chaotic enough to feed that creative side of myself. And at the same time, feel like I've got some roots and some stability. That has been an interesting balance. In terms of, you know, work and kids and relationships, that is an ongoing, constant struggle. The best I can do right now is I try to wear the hat for the outfit I currently have on. (laughs) So if I'm at work, I wear that hat and I try not to let the guilt in about not being with my family. And if I'm with my family, I try not to think about all the 10 things I should be doing at work. I try to just wear the hat that I need to wear at that point at that moment and stay as present as I can. There's one other topic that I want to touch on, which is you have really established yourself as an expert in pop rock style interpretation, pop rock audition material. You spearheaded a class at U of M teaching musical theater students how to sing and interpret pop rock music. And I was in the inaugural class, that inaugural class, and we had a great time. I had the best time. I was like living my pop star dreams in that class. How did you get started and so passionate about rock pop music, Cynthia? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. I mean, I'm sure it goes all the way back to when I was a kid and I wasn't allowed to listen to rock music. I grew up in a very conservative Christian environment where we just weren't allowed. You were in the Footloose town. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. We weren't allowed to dance. Dancing was not allowed, actually, in my school. And so I would sneak to my friend's house and we would sit on the, I still remember, like I can picture the plush carpet that we would sit on and we had a record player and we would put it in the middle and we would sit on the ground and we would listen to records. And 
I've always loved it. It was something I was never allowed to play. My piano teacher refused to work on that. My first piano teacher refused to work on that music with me. And by the time I got further advanced as a pianist, it never even occurred to me to ask those piano teachers to work on it with me anymore because I was so down the classical path at that point. But I loved the music. I've always loved the music. It's always been very cathartic for me. So it's what I go to. It's That's the kind of music I go to, whether I'm in love, in a breakup, having lost somebody, confused, whatever the emotion is, that's the kind of music I go to. It's never theater music. It's always rock pop music. And then when I moved to New York, I was able to take some rock piano lessons with a, with a really incredible person who helped me down that path. And then just having done all those years of Lion King, I was around these unbelievably incredible rock musicians night after night after night. There's something really special about hearing the same music over and over and over played slightly differently by these incredible musicians who improv and can just put tiny little interpretive spins on night to night. There's something really educational about that. And then I think just watching years of auditions for Lion King and for all the other rock pop shows I've did, I I sort of landed in a lot of that arena that I started to think, you know, you just start to think what is making that person sound quote unquote right? And what is making that person sound musical theater? Like, what is that? And often you couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but you know it when you hear it. You know when something sounds authentic and you know when it doesn't. And so there was something that I really enjoyed trying to figure that out. And then when I started the class at Michigan, <laughs> apologies to you in year one, because goodness knows what that class was. I re- I do remember us just having a lot of fun. I'm not sure there was a whole lot of teaching going on necessarily because <laughs> we didn't really know what it was yet. I didn't really know what it was yet. I learned a lot. Well, I'm glad. I You should take the class now. I think it's even better. <laughs> I would love to. Can I? I'd love to sit in that class. <laughs> but yeah, over the years, I've I've found ways to codify these you know it when you hear it kind of things so that you can teach it to someone and not just say, oh, well, you just got to listen to more of that music or you just got to feel it or you just got to groove. Like all of these things that aren't tangible and don't help a singer know what to grab onto. And so, yeah, I think now after my years at Michigan and being you know, in New York, exposed to so many incredible musicians and so many incredible actors who do it so well. And then at Michigan, being exposed to so many incredible teachers and then meshing that together. You know, how do I take everything that I was gleaning in all those, well, and continue, you know, still to this day, I, I still sit in a lot of rock pop auditions. How can I take all that information, use the skills I now have as a teacher, make it into something? tangible and codified that I can share with people has just become a real passion. I just love it. I love the music and I love the the puzzle of trying to figure out how to teach this material that is inherently sort of emotional and nebulous and has so many different genres, even within the big genre of rock pop. It's just fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating to me. A little sneak peek for our listeners. If you want to learn from Cynthia about 
singing and interpreting and performing pop rock music, we've got some really cool things coming, coming your way. And if you want to be notified about them, make sure you're on our email list. We'll have a link to that in our show notes, but you do not want to miss upcoming masterclasses that Cynthia is going to be giving. And also further down the line, an online course. Can we say that? Can we preview that? Down the line. Keep yes. your eyes peeled. Yes. Coming soon. Something. Very, very fun resources coming down. So look for that. Definitely get on our email list if you want first access to those events and, and courses coming your way. Cynthia, you've sat behind a lot of audition tables and you've been instrumental in a lot of young artists getting started and in their training. What do you think is a piece of advice that helps people get started on the right on the right foot in this industry? Okay, one piece of advice. I'm not saying this is the most highest level piece of advice or the only piece of advice, but it's a piece of advice, which is the idea of when you audition, rather than thinking about booking the job or trying to be the right fit or playing any of that game, I really love this notion of transforming the room, whether that means you're going to bring in a whole bunch of sunshine into the room with your sunny disposition, whether it means you're going to sing the most angsty ballad of your life, whether it means you're going to find a chair in the corner and stand up on it midway through your song, whatever that means. The auditions that always stand out to me are the ones where people just transform the room somehow, that there's some kind of energy shift when they walk in because they are just so authentically who they are. They're clearly not trying to play a game or be the right thing. And sometimes it doesn't even feel like they're trying to book the job. They're just doing their thing and leaving the room. And there's something about that that has always made me do a double take of what just happened. That was amazing. I don't even know why, but there was something transformative about that moment. And easier said than done, obviously, but I love that mindset of just bringing in an energy shift rather than trying to play a game and book a job. That if you can bring in a new energy into that room, job well done, call it a success and move on. That's great advice. I love that. All right, Cynthia, you ready for our lightning round? You're our guest today, so you get the lightning round. Number one, Cynthia, what fuels you? Creativity and compassion. I know that sounds weird, but to be in a room full of compassionate, creative people, which includes my children, my husband, the people I work with, you, you know, there's something that fuels me compassionate creativity. How about that? What drains you? Negativity and lack of solution. When someone tells me there's no solution and they're negative about it, that's it. That makes me, that just drains me because there's always a solution. Doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a solution. What profession other than your own would you like to do? Oh, well, I'm somewhat doing it, starting to do it, which 
I won't share fully yet because I'm not fully there yet, but I'll give you a tidbit of it, which is 25 years ago when my mom died, I was just blown away by the hospice folks that worked with my mom and that we worked with. And ever since then, I have always wanted to do something in that arena so wildly different from anything music related. (laughs) But there's something about the end of life process that I actually found really beautiful in a in a difficult way, if that makes sense. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. <laughs> a strange mm-hmm. answer, but I am actually working towards some certification in that area right now because it it yeah, is another really passion cool. of mine that I've always wanted to do something with. I love that. What is your favorite form of self-care? Oh, like curled up in my bed with the electric heating pad on and my dog on my lap and some form of real trashy Netflix streaming stuff going on. (laughs) That's terrible. That's probably the opposite of self-care, but that's currently what it is. (laughs) No, I'm so (laughs) just being honest. (laughs) Yes. What's your favorite comfort food? Oh, French fries every day, all the time. That's a lie. I don't eat French fries, but if I could, that's the, that would be it. <laughs> I do eat French fries. I, I eat them with frequency and I, yes, French fries, French fries every day. The baby Even has gotten some, some bites of French fries and I'm always just amazed. I'm like, we are wired from birth to know what the good stuff is. She's like, yeah, give me some more of those French fries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> okay, Cynthia, in a PG version, what is your favorite curse word? Tell us something it rhymes with. I have a favorite curse phrase. Oh, yes, which is, bonus. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a rhyming word. For duck's sake. <laughs> It's effective. My favorite phrase. (laughs) Cynthia, what are you grateful for? Oh, wow. Oh, I'm so grateful for my family, my kids, my husband. To be honest, Chels, I'm outrageously grateful for you, for our company. I'm grateful for the work that I do, the people that I work with. I'm grateful for my friends. And having gone through a number of health dramas, I'm really grateful for my health right now. So a lot. I'm grateful for a lot. I'm grateful for French fries. I'm grateful for... (laughs) Yes, is a good list. (laughs) Netflix. Grateful for (laughs) heating pads. (laughs) We're on the same page with all of that. Cynthia, if you have any final thoughts before we sign off, anything you want to add? Final thoughts. Let's see. My final thought would be that it's okay to have lots of mountains and valleys in your life. And sometimes the valleys turn out to actually be a mountain in disguise, Chelsea. But but meaning that the trajectory I thought my life would take, it didn't always take. And in the moments that it didn't take it, I thought I was at a low point or a valley or something was wrong or I had made the wrong decision. And the journey is really long and really interesting and, and fascinating. And and it's okay to, to have a journey that doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. <laughs> it turns mm-hmm. out it can turn out to be really beautiful in a, in just in a different way. And, and I feel like there, there probably isn't a person on the planet 
whose journey has gone the way they thought it would go back when they were young. And, you know, it really, really is okay when life doesn't go exactly the way you think it's going to go. I totally feel the same. I think there's so much wisdom in that. Cynthia, thanks for joining me today. It's been so lovely to hear more of the the personal (laughs) and the backstory and the behind the scenes and to just hear like the real moments behind it all. And I really appreciate you sharing that with all of us today. Do I say thanks for having me on my own podcast? Thanks for having me on my podcast. (laughs) See you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a screenshot, tag us on Instagram at B-Way Vocal Coach, share this episode with a friend, and consider leaving us a review. And if you're ready to take your next step in this industry, but aren't entirely sure what that should be, then take our quiz. We'll strategize with you to outline a roadmap to your unique goals. Plus, from there, you can book a free consult with us. Visit bwayvocalcoach.com backslash take the quiz. We can't wait to hear your story and help you take the next step in your career. Thanks for listening.